It's time for Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And here is your host, Inside Towers business editor, John Celentano. Hello, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit insidetowers.com intelligence. Today, we want to talk about building network infrastructure. Unless you work outdoors, most of us do not appreciate what it takes to actually build wireless and wireless networks. Certainly a lot of equipment and workers are all choreographed to meet deadlines and service delivery schedules, whether trenching fiber in the ground or installing new cell sites on towers. And when it comes to tower climbers, we see videos of men and women in their safety harnesses and helmets high up on the structure. Looks pretty cool. But in fact, it's when they get to that height that the real work begins. Joining us today to talk about the network construction business is Craig Snyder, founder and CEO of Vicor Teleconstruction. Craig, welcome to Tower Talks. Thank you, John. Great to be with you today. Good to see you again. Tell us about uh, Vicor and uh, how you got into the business. Oh, yeah, that's a, it's an interesting story. Um, I'm kind of a home-brewed tower hand turned uh, entrepreneur. Got into the business back in uh, 1984. Took a job while I was in college climbing towers. Right. Back in, in the day where I lived, there was no cellular then. It was still in its infancy, so we did a lot of work on broadcast, AM, FM, TV. And uh, about five years later, uh, started my own business. And so I've been doing that now in business for myself for about 32 years. Three Went from three guys and a truck to about 200 employees and six offices. So it's slow growth, but, uh, you know, a 30-year overnight success. Indeed. I, I saw you had posted a photo recently of a couple of tall broadcast towers. I, I think it was in South, South Dakota. Um, and, and collectively, they were like 4,000 feet tall. And uh, are these the types of towers you're talking about you started working on? Yeah, one of those towers was, you know, uh, one of the first towers I, I got to work on back in the early 80s. And they're still there. One wow. of those was is there for years. And the other one we actually helped build um, many years later. So I have to ask, yeah, how high have you climbed? <laughs> well, I've been on top of a many 2,000 foot towers. That's wow. as tall as they build wow. uh, telecom towers. There's one in North Dakota that's 2,060 feet. That's the tallest in the United States. Above that, the FAA doesn't get permits. But yeah, I've changed beacons right on the top. Amazing. You know, I had a friend in the site acquisition business who was telling me they were doing some surveys flying over in the Midwest somewhere. And they were actually flying below the height of the tower, you know, the, uh, as they went by them. So uh, th these are pretty tall structures indeed. So walk us through, Craig, um, what's involved in actually, you know, building these new cell sites. There's a lot of activity these days related to 5G. Uh, you know, we, we know there's a, a lot of activity upcoming with the C-band installations, but you know, there's a lot of equipment involved. You have crews out there. Just kind of give us a scenario of what it takes to, to put up one of these sites. 
Well, yeah, good question. It, it all starts with the crew, the men. You know, they're the most valuable asset in the infrastructure build out for companies like mine. Um, and uh, we try to pride ourselves at Vicor at building efficient and committed crews. So that, that's where you start. And then after that, you have to add to that the equipment, the actual physical assets like a truck, a trailer, all the tools, sweet PIM test gear, um, drum hoist, you know, backhoes and mini excavators and uh, all kinds of hand tools. Put it all together into a package of equipment and then you just mobilize those uh, those tools and men out to those job sites. You know, if you're doing a raw land build, you're you're breaking brand new virgin dirt with an excavator, and you're putting in concrete foundations and rebar and anchor steel. If you're then you erect that tower either with a crane or a gym pole, and later you know you're putting the antennas and lines and hybrid cables up. Uh, that's where it gets really technical. Back when I started in the 80s it was really pretty much nuts and bolts and wrenches. Right. And now it's, it's fiber optic connections and test gear and really um, highly uh, technical installation processes and procedures that our people have adapted to over the years. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. The, you know, the skill level has gone way up because of the technology being installed. You know, you mentioned, uh, uh, Fiber, obviously, you have to be able to install and test RF at a minimum, but more fiber to the cell site. Um, obviously, there's power considerations. There's, uh, um, you know, in addition to all the mechanical work you have to do to mount, mount the equipment up there. So, um, exactly. Yeah. Me mechanical is the uh, almost the easier skill now. Yeah. And, and the technical stuff becomes the, the more difficult. Mm -hmm skill to train and, and to pass on. And, and that's where our, our customers hold us the most accountable as well. So that, that brings up the point, you know, and we've held several sessions talking about workforce development and the need for more skilled workers. So when you're looking to bring on new hires, is there, uh, what sort of skill, uh, skill levels or experience do you look for? Yeah, there, I, I wrote an article for the National Association of Tower Records, Nate, several years ago, and identified five major things that go into making a an efficient and effective and you know successful tower worker. Mm -hmm. But the two that really stand out, especially in our part of the country where there's a lot of wide open space, is um, first of all the ability to work at heights. Uh, you know, if, you, if you've brought a hundred people into a room randomly and you said how many of you and showed them some pictures of towers and you said how many of you feel like you could climb that that tower be up on top of that tower you might get five percent that say they right. could do that right. then you, you take those five and you say all right let's go out and try it out <laughs> and when you're done with that you might get two that actually say i think we can do this right and they stick with the job and then you take those two and you prove them out on the tower for two or three months mm -hmm. and maybe you have one left um, so one in a hundred maybe could do wow. that. Uh, and then the second big thing is travel. Uh, it's a traveling lifestyle. And so it's not like it, most trades, you know, you go to work, you, uh, and you're a plumber, you're an electrician, or you're a carpenter, you're working in town, 
you start at 7 a.m., you get off at four or five, and you know you work about four or five days a week. In the tower world, you're working uh, 10, 12 hour days, you're out on the road, you're in a motel every night, you might be on the road two or 300 days a year. Uh, and that's the second probably most challenging um, characteristic of tower workers. So those are the, the big hurdles to get over. After that, you, you can do pretty well. You know, I would talk to some climbers and they, they say they're doing quite a bit more work at night these days, you know, like uh, uh, 10, 10 to 10 or 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. kind of work. Is, is that, uh, are you seeing that as being, uh, I mean, it's obviously part of the job, but is that becoming more commonplace as we scramble to get more infrastructure installed? Well, yeah, what, what's happening is our customers are, you know, their networks are up and running. They're, you know, pumping a ton of traffic through them. They don't want to turn that off. Um, it's very disruptive to their customers. So they always are looking for ways to minimize the downtime. Of course, downtime is easiest in the middle of the night. Uh, I wouldn't say that I see that as a trend with our company. It may be in certain settings. We certainly have um, maintenance windows when we're doing uh, retrofit work where we're adding carriers to a, a sector or new sectors um, where they'll say, okay, we'll give you this many hours to get this down and then back up. Mm-hmm. And so it, it does raise the complexity, complexity and challenge and working at night, it raises it even higher. I'm not a big fan and, and we try to avoid working at night. Yeah. Yeah. I would think, you know, there's uh, you have enough, enough challenges in the daytime. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've seen pictures of your uh, state-of-the-art training facility uh, uh, there in Sioux Falls. Um, uh, how do you, how are you utilizing it these days to bring your crew's uh, um, skill levels and competencies and best practices up to par? Yeah, one of the biggest challenges uh, in our industry is we're a burgeoning trade. You know, for many years, like when I was climbing, we were such a small industry, we didn't have enough workforce to really attract trade schools and that kind of thing um, to become, you know, efficient or, or learn the skills through formal training or apprenticeship programs or anything. So we end up having to become a trade school and a tower company where we bring our people in and we bring them up to speed ourselves. There's a little bit of action going on on that right now with some trade schools around the country. But um, so we decided many years ago, we would invest in our own in-house training facility. There's some wonderful third-party training uh, uh, organizations out there. We do ours in-house. And uh, what we find is a pretty big investment. Our our training facilities, you know, millions of dollars, honestly, between the building itself and everything that's in it. Sure. Um, So, but what, what you do is um, as our customers have raised their bar higher and higher on quality and, and, uh, and safety and things like that, we've had to raise ours. And so it's an investment that we've chosen to make um, that we believe uh, over time pays dividends. So it's a pretty awesome facility, has every kind of tower. It's a self-support, a guide tower, wow. a monopole tower, every kind of antenna system from broadcast to cellular, um, radio uh, equipment, uh, you know, base station equipment, wow. all of that's uh, in their FAA lighting. And then everything that we do in the field, we can bring our people in mm-hmm. and train them on in a controlled environment and, uh, and bring them up to speed. They come in when they're brand new, and then they come back at three months 
and do their competent climber training and WSA level training after that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the certifications. Uh, uh, obviously, you, you, you'd strive to uh, do enough to get them to pass and qualify for those certifications. But uh, th does your facility have to be, how should I say, approved or certified itself to be uh, uh, considered a, a training center that would that would lead to um, getting a, like NWSA certifications? Well, NWSA does have uh, minimum requirements for the kind of uh, structure and equipment, but right. that's not very high bar. What's the higher bar is the actual uh, training uh, certifiers. They, the training instructors have to be NWSA certified. I got you. And so that's where the, the bar is a little higher. So we have our own in-house NWSA um, training and test mm -hmm, certifiers. Mm -hmm. and you mentioned staff levels, but how, how many crews do you actually have in the field these days? On any given day, it, it varies <laughs> a couple, couple of crews, but it's between 45 and 50 crews. How many people per crew? A maintenance crew might be two men and a full new construction crew, four plus men mm -hmm. or women. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it depends on the kind of work you're doing. Yeah, you talked about earlier uh, breaking ground and, and putting in a, a base for, for a new tower. And uh, you've identified a problem uh, with some of the, um, the guy anchors on the, on the big guide towers. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit, uh, what the problem you found and, and what kind of resolution we're able to do on, on that. I always like to uh, think about backwards on life and what some of the best learning experiences were. And if you think about it for yourself, you'll always point to times when you had the biggest challenge, the hardest things. You, you don't really remember the good times, right. but you definitely remember the hard times. Well, in 1990, we had one of those hard times. We were brand new in business, open shop in 1989. We were doing a tower inspection on a cable TV tower. Uh, myself and there was three men in the truck back in those days, myself right. and two others. Uh, the, the two others were up on the tower. I was down on the ground and I was actually digging around an anchor shaft because the, the dirt had come up on the, on the fan plate where the turnbuckles connect. And uh, about that time, that particular anchor broke. It had been corroded almost all the way in two and wow. about seven feet below ground is where it necks down to that very narrow point. It broke and the tower began to fall just like a tree. It was only three anchors. So when one breaks, it's just coming over together in one, one tall piece. The guys were up 180 feet and they, they rode the tower down. And by miracle, they both survived uh, the fall, um, very seriously injured, uh, but they came through it. Uh, well, what we found was, of course, there was a corrosion on this underground anchor shaft. And um, so this talking about hard things and hard lessons that uh, we learned, but we, we were able through that discovery and after the guys healed up and things like that, we were able to uh, bring that knowledge to the industry. And through um, a, a matter of over the course of uh, several years, TIA and, and other industry mm -hmm. groups recognized this underground corrosion on guide tower anchors is a problem. And I spoke in many conferences around the country about the problem, wrote white papers. Um, and eventually we came up with uh, a solution that is uh, not unique to the corrosion industry, but sort of unique to our industry. And we applied that solution, uh, cathodic protection, and uh, have a company called Anchor Guard 
that produces a, a product that you can install on guide tower anchors to um, stop that corrosion, mitigate the corrosion, so that they'll live to be the, the life of the tower as opposed to mm -hmm. in the case of that tower in 1990, the tower would still be standing today if it hadn't been that for that corroded anchor that brought it down. Hard lesson to learn, but um, something that we've shared with the rest of the industry and something that we've always believed in, mm -hmm. share that, that information. Is every, every guide tower susceptible to this problem? Uh, are, have they all been treated or are they in the process of all being treated? Yeah, great question. Um, severe catastrophic corrosion is um, probably more prevalent on a, a smaller number. So we don't have to like raise the red fire, five alarm fire in the industry. And most people that have guide towers already know about this problem anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a percentage of them that it's a very serious problem. The challenge in this, with this is you don't know which ones because they're six, seven, eight, ten feet underground mm -hmm. and you can't inspect them easily. So um, the industry, uh, many, most of the big uh, tower owning companies like American Tower and Crown Castle and SBA and, uh, SBA and others have implemented pro programs and processes to inspect and protect those uh, their tower assets and and are but it's a slow and steady process as well because one time isn't enough you got to kind of go back and and prevent that corrosion from happening going forward as well gotcha gotcha uh we i meant to ask you earlier um when we were talking about the uh, field work um you know there's a lot of a lot uh at, at the uh, government level and and uh in at the carrier level regarding rip and replace uh, program that's um, upcoming to uh, remove equipment that is considered not trustworthy and, and replace it. But uh, you guys helped me on it with an article last year uh, talking about what rip and replace really means. And in fact, it's replace first and then rip it out. So um, are you, I would expect in your area, you're going to run into a bit of that with uh, some of the uh, carrier customers that you have operating in the region. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what that process involves. You know, if we, it's not a, just a matter of taking out an existing radio and antenna and putting in a new one, we've got to maintain service, right? How do you do that? Yeah. Uh, it, and you, you're, you're on to the, the more complex, how it becomes a more co complex problem than just taking stuff down and putting it back up. So if you're at the, if your antenna uh, systems and your, your sector mounts are at 300 foot level on a 300 foot tower, you don't really want to lose that elevation spot. So you have to um, put up some temporary antennas, um, take down the old antennas, then move the new antennas back into place uh, where the temporary antennas were. Um, and so it's kind of a, a multi-step process, mm -hmm. which takes a little bit longer, uh, unless the customer is comfortable with just saying, hey, I'm okay with it being off air for a couple of days while the crew comes in and puts up the new antennas. But it's like that building a brand new site or, or locating brand new equipment uh, on a tower uh, that, that wasn't there before, only we also have to carefully place it and then remove the old equipment. So it'll be a, a big deal for these tertiary, you know, smaller local cellular companies that have to do that. I think the FCC is tried to do a pretty good job of uh, reimbursing them and, and making arrangements for it. Um, and, but some of it, um, John, just like the, the TV repack, 
well, how's this going to go? And how can we do it? Do we have enough time? Do we have enough money? Mm-hmm. Someone's just going to have to, we're going to have to jump in and start it and to see how it goes. But mm-hmm. I'm confident that, you know, that it can happen and, and without too much disruption to their networks. Do you primarily work directly for the carriers or um, what's a normal um, uh, contractual arrangement with your customers? Well, um, you know, it can be a combination of things. I think most contractors like Vicor um, seek to work directly mm-hmm. for um, the big three plus DISH. Uh, they don't always award their work to medium to small size contractors. They, they often are looking for big general contractors. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, Vicor personally, we work direct or we, or we probably don't work, mm-hmm. um, but there's a few exceptions to that rule. Uh, but generally speaking, when you introduce more middlemen, uh, the guy at the bottom of the food chain, either he's not getting as much compensation and he's getting a little bit more grief in the, the construction mm-hmm. process so it's always uh, desirable to work directly for your customers. Yeah, that's what we go for. Great. Craig, this is really interesting. I, I'm sure we could go on uh, for a little longer, but um, uh, any final thoughts as we, we wrap up here? Well, um, I just appreciate everything that Inside Towers does mm-hmm. to uh, keep the, the industry informed. One of the first things I do every morning is open up my email and read the stories that interest me and inside towers often share them on LinkedIn or other way. And and particularly you, John, with your study of of CapEx and business intelligence kind of things, it's always Mm -hmm. great to, to be informed. And so I'm excited about the future for our industry. Honestly, we have, uh, we have a big 5g boom that's just getting kicked off. Mm-hmm. There's some tremendous ramp in uh, underground utilities and, and mm-hmm. fiber, um, but there is a lot of white space in the country that still needs to be connected. Um, and I, I feel a little bit like we are in about the mid 50s where I'm from in South Dakota when rural electric still hadn't come to all the homes. Wow. And people were just waiting. Yeah. You know, they had the, the house was wired, the appliances were purchased but the house was still dark. And then finally those utility poles started popping up on the rural road and it passed by their house and they were able to connect. We're gonna be seeing a lot of that kind of thing going on uh, in the next few years. And so the industry should be good. We got some of our own problems and we won't talk about those today, but <laughs> there's also a lot of really good things going on. Yeah, uh, I, I, great, great observations, Craig. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're very high on, on the prospects for this industry as well. And, and frankly, we're in a good space, but um, uh, so we appreciate your time and, and your perspectives. Uh, how can people contact Vicor if uh, they are interested in finding more about your services? Well, real simple, five letters, B-I-K-O-R.com. And uh, all the things you need to know about us will be there uh, at Vicor.com. We're happy to help. Great discussion, Craig. Thanks for speaking with us today. And thank you to everyone who listened in. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.